Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. In today's episode, we are going to pause momentarily in our discussion with all of our phenomenal guests that we've had on our show, just to do a little bit of vocabulary surrounding breast cancer. As you'll see, there's a lot of important words and phrases that we tend to use for the management of breast cancer, and they're quite confusing. So I think this is awesome that we're going to just have a little roundtable discussion about some of these terms. Yeah, this episode is really going to break down the important fundamental principles that you need to know for breast cancer. We're going to give you good mnemonics in understanding, remembering the T stage and the N stage, which is critically important. We're going to talk about molecular subclassification and just general important things that you need to understand before you can get into the nuances with the surgeons and especially with some of our treatment episodes as we talk about the medical oncology systemic therapy portion. And there's no two ways around it. Like breast cancer is complicated. And a lot of the reason for that is that we've just gotten a more nuanced understanding over years and years of research as to the different types of this disease and, and the different ways to optimally manage it. So there's a lot of lingo to learn and we're gonna we're gonna take you through it. Alright guys, I'm excited. Here we go. How are we feeling today guys? Doing good. It's great to have Dan back. You know, I, I feel like things went for some reason, even the intro, I'm like, this feels a lot smoother now that Dan's back. So Dan, tell us about where you've been. What, what have you been up to? I was out of town for a few days, uh, doing a little wedding planning. Very exciting stuff. I got to taste a variety of cakes. I did some some dinner tastings as well. I walked through the venue, all sorts of stuff. We met a guy who just does wedding arches. Didn't know that was a thing. It's amazing how many things you can and in fact need to rent to pull one of these off. It gets a little ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm really mad that I didn't, that there's no single wedding thing to invest in, you know, during the pandemic. I feel like I should have just dumped all of my stock money into weddings because I feel like the prices have shot up pretty drastically. I don't know. Maybe for our wedding, I was just shocked with what the prices were. Yeah. Yeah. I have no frame of reference. This is the, the first time I've gotten married, but but man, I agree. It is it is pricey. I 100% agree. And then I don't know. I was really excited about the cake tasting portion. It ended up not being as awesome as I thought it was going to be, they all kind of taste the same in the end. So we kind of just went with, I'm pretty sure we went with like vanilla with some fun frosting on the inside. That was about it. Nice. Yeah, they're pretty fancy. You got a box of six flavors uh, to taste. And then I was celebrating Easter with my parents as well. So we got a separate cake for that from the same baker. It was gorgeous. It was really pretty. But I got to say, it looked a little bit like a cigarette butt just because it was like very narrow and tall and it had gold around the bottom. And I, as soon as I had told my parents and, and Logan, they were all like, yep, that's that's what this looks like. But it tasted good. It did not taste like a cigarette butt. Well, I'm happy for you to get a cigarette butt cake for your wedding, but that's just how things go. I know I know our wedding cake, vent, this is the last thing I'm going to say because people probably get sick of hearing us <laughs> ramble about nonsense, but the wedding cake that we had in Nashville, I absolutely loved it. Leland Cakes. If you guys want to sponsor us, Leland, we have listeners that do not live in Nashville that have nothing to do with this, but sponsorship. Again, we're always looking for it. Leland Cakes, really good. Well, on that note, guys, maybe we should get back to our regularly scheduled breast cancer discussion. And I think 
as we were preparing for this, even when we learn about breast cancer in our didactics or when we see these patients in our clinic, it's no mystery that there are a lot of words and phrases that we use to describe, you know, how we approach the care of our patients. It's honestly really confusing for them, but quite frankly, also confusing for us as their doctors. And so I'm glad that we're taking a little bit of a, of a break and doing something a little bit unconventional that we haven't done before and just spending an episode defining some of these important terms and phrases. Yeah. And to start off, let me just kick us off with the case. So you have already heard our, hopefully have heard our breast radiology episode. So let's say we have a patient who had a diagnostic mammogram that showed a BIRADS 4C lesion. It was a 3.2 centimeter spiculated mass. She ended up getting an ultrasound guided core biopsy. And now we're getting the PATH report back. And this PATH report said ER positive, PR positive, HER2 negative by IHC with FISH pending, and no special type. The grade was reported as grade two, and the KI-67 was 20%. So let's let's break down this PATH report, because I always wonder, what the heck is no special type? How are we getting this ER-positive, HER2-positive business? So let's start with the basics. Can one of you tell me, how do we get ER-positivity? What does that mean? What does ER-PR-positive mean? So if you remember back to way, way back in our first few episodes, uh, episode three, I think, we talked about different ways to categorize or classify the phenotype of a cell. And one of those ways is immunohistochemistry or IHC. That's the technology we use to determine hormone receptor status. So we use these stains that are able to detect specific markers on the outside of a cell. And that tells us whether or not there's estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors present on the outside of these cancer cells. The estrogen receptor positivity helps predict response to hormone therapy or estrogen blocking medications. The cutoff for positivity is greater than 1% of the cells in the sample being positive. The progesterone receptor is also reported and it's often just kind of combined to say hormone receptor positive or HR positive breast cancer. And you can have ER positivity without progesterone positivity, without PR positivity. And again, for prediction of response to therapy, we, we really are mostly looking at estrogen receptor, but they're, they're both reported. And I think this is one of the earliest insights we had into targeted therapies was endocrine therapy, which is, which is very fascinating. We talked about molecular targets in lung cancer, and in this case, we had ERPR positivity on IHC, and we were able to target that. And knowing that it's looking staining these cells, and again, it's just how many of the cells stain brown. We, we talked about that in our previous episode, and we recommend everybody check that out. But greater than or equal to 1% is ERPR positive. So obviously, there's going to be varying degrees of strong positivity and weak positivity and things like that. But again, that's that's always fascinating to me. So what about HER2 status? How is that determined? So HER2, we also talked about that, I believe, in one of our future episodes. And this one's a little bit more eloquent, for lack of a better term. So first, they use IHC testing in the same way that Dan described using IHC testing for ER and PR. So again, you're using biochemical stains. You're trying to see is their color change, and you grade it based on the amount that you see. So in IHC, if you have an IHC zero, that means that there's no standing observed and there's barely anything visible um, in less than 10% of the cells. And so those patients, by definition, are HER2 negative. Then you can have someone that it's IHC1+, which is an incomplete faint staining, and you see this color uptake in greater than 10% of the invasive tumor cells. And so these patients are considered HER2 low, and 
This will become more relevant when we talk about the metastatic setting, especially based on some more recent newer data that has come out. If the patient has IHC2+, that means there's weak to moderate complete membrane staining that's observed in more than 10% of the invasive tumor cells. And actually, this is an equivocal result. So we reflex to fish, and we'll come back to that in a second. But essentially, if the patient is IHC2+, and if fish is negative, then they're considered HER2 low. And again, this is important in the metastatic setting. In IHC3+, the patient displays complete intense circumferential membranous staining in more than 10% of the cells. And so essentially, you have what appears to be homogeneous uptake of that color. And so bottom line is 3 plus is considered positive. Now, I mentioned that slight nuance with the IHC2+, and that's when we also reflex to fish. And Vivek, I thought you did a really great job about talking about this in our previous episode. Can you remind us what that was all about? Yeah, definitely. So remember that when we have a IHC2+, we have an equivocal result and we reflex this FISH testing. What FISH is, is it's looking at colored probes that will bind to certain pre-specified DNA regions. So what we're doing here is we're actually taking two different colors of probes. One probe is going to bind to the HER2 gene, which is located on the 17th chromosome. And let's say that's the red probe. And then we have another probe, which let's call it the green probe, that will be our control probe. And that's going to bind to a centromere region on chromosome 17 called CEP17, C-E-P-17. And what we're doing here is we're looking at within these cells, how much red probe do we see? If we see a lot of red and a little green, that means our HER2 is amplified. That HER2 gene is specifically amplified in that cell. So the way to remember this is remember the numbers 246. If the HER2 gene signal is greater than 6, that is HER2 positive. Done and done. If the ratio, so now there's another case, right? Let's say that we don't have greater than 6 copies of the HER2 gene, but we looked at our control, our control CEP CEP17 and said, well, what's the ratio between the red and the green, the HER2 and this CEP17? And if that ratio is greater than 2, then we think that that's also considered HER2 positive. And again, I'm, I'm simplifying it. There's a little more nuance there that I'm not talking about that we want you to check out in our show notes. But just remember, ratio greater than 2, we're good to go. And if we have a HER2 signal greater than 6, we're good to go. Then you might be asking, okay, you said 246. Where does that 4 come from? And if the HER2 signal is at 4, but the ratio is less than 2, then you're again equivocal on fish testing, and it's like an election recount. You basically just look at the IHC again, and you look at the fish again with another pathologist, let's say, and then it's like the Florida recount. You're trying to figure out who wins the election, if they're truly HER2 positive or not. So you might see HER2 negative with a comment saying that, hey, even when we did the recount, it actually still is HER2 negative. So long story short, that's what's saying. But if you just remember that if you're looking for more copies of HER2, there's two different colored probes. If there's lots of HER2 signal, that's HER2 positive, greater than six copies per cell. And if you have a ratio of that HER2 to that control region on chromosome 17 that's greater than two, you're also generally HER2 positive. I love the way you broke that down. I always found HER2 determination to be some of the most confusing stuff when I was first learning you know, breast cancer management. And be sure to check out our show notes to get that rundown uh, so you can look over it again, just because sometimes it's nice to see it written out as well. So essentially, 
And guys, what I'm taking away is that IHC is one way that we can characterize or classify the tumor that we're looking at. But I suspect from all the other jargon that you said when we when you discussed the pathology for this patient, there's more that we also discuss in terms of how we characterize our tumors. So what else are we looking at? The next big step is to classify our tumor by morphology. And the way I like to think about this is extremely simplified and probably too simple, but for me, it's really the thing that makes the most sense. And we're going to link a good picture in our show notes. Within the breast, think about the think about two simple areas. You have lobules and you have ducts, okay? So lobules are milk-producing glands, and the ducts carry the milk from the lobules. So those are your two options, lobules or ducts. You can have tumor cells that are confined to the lobule, and that's called lobular carcinoma in situ. Or you could have tumor cells that are confined to the duct, and that's called ductal carcinoma in situ. When we think about many of our patients with breast cancer that are seeing a medical oncologist, these are women with invasive breast cancer. What does that mean? That means it invaded out of the lobule or it invaded out of the duct. So it's not confined to the duct, but invaded outwards. And that's an invasive breast cancer. And the most common thing that you will see is invasive mammary carcinoma or invasive breast cancer, no special type. And what this means is, is that it's invasive cancer that started from the duct and and grew out of the duct. So ductal carcinoma is the most common histology. Remember, morphology is what does it look like? Well, looks like the ducts. And you stain it to see if they have the certain phenotypic expressions that you'd expect from originating from the ducts. And that's invasive ductal carcinoma. No special type just means that's the histology we're seeing. But Dan, what are some of the other special type histologies? There are other types out there. Of course, no special type. We call it that because just the plain invasive ductal carcinoma is the most common. But there are some other types that are worth keeping in mind. Some of these tend to portend a better prognosis if they're purely one specific special type, as opposed to sort of a mixed histology. And it's it's really because these are less common, it's a little bit difficult to reliably draw conclusions, but we have seen some suggestion. There was a, a fairly large study from a Korean breast cancer registry. We'll link to that article in our show notes as well that described some, some data on these. So some of the other ones to keep in mind are this lobular carcinoma, tubular, cribiform, mucinous or colloid breast cancer, medullary, papillary, micropapillary, and metaplastic. So going through these, one of the ones that I think of as having sort of a better prognosis is the pure tubular type. When I see pure tubular, I generally am thinking, okay, well, this is probably a less aggressive form. Some of the more aggressive forms I think of, metaplastic, of course, that's sort of even the name means that it's probably a little bit less differentiated. Often it's triple negative, and and so generally triple negative cancers, meaning it doesn't have any hormone receptors, no ERPR, and no HER2 receptor. Those tend to have worse prognosis just because, again, our our targeted therapy options are are much more limited in those cases. And micropapillary, I tend to think of as having a worse prognosis. Often these will be higher-grade tumors, more frequently will involve the lymph vessels and the vasculature. So those are kind of the ones that I think of. Another one, and I honestly, I kind of keep this separate in my mind from the other special types of breast cancer, is the malignant phylloides tumor. This 
is more of a sarcoma than a carcinoma. And so I, I think of it as being treated like one, and it needs a good sort of wide surgical excision to be properly managed. Uh, but those are those are some of the more common, or at least the subtypes that stick out in my mind. And so I think one of the biggest things is when you see a report that says no special type, it doesn't mean worse prognosis. It just means that it's all ductal. If it, it can have mixed picture where some of it's one of these special type of histologies, but in general, many of these special type histologies have a better prognosis. Metaplastic and micropapillary are a few of the exceptions. That's good to know. And Vivek, the other thing I think you commented on in that pathology report was the grade. And so I feel like we've seen grade in other tumor types too. Do you want to kind of walk us through what that entails? Yeah, definitely. And this is really important in breast cancer. Key thing to know in breast cancer, you can have grade one, two, or three. Low, intermediate, or high. Keep one thing in mind. Grade three is a high-grade tumor. Grade one and two, I would lump them together. They're the low intermediate risk, but I'll just call them lower risk. So remember, grade three is high risk. The way this is done is there's several things the pathologist is looking at. They're looking at the percentage of tubule formation. So a more organized cancer is lower grade. A less organized cancer, less tubules that are being formed is higher grade. So that's a part of the scoring system. They look at the nucleus. What is the nucleus size and shape? What does it look like? Does it look large and funky? If it looks large and funky, that's more of a higher grade tumor. And they also look at the mitotic count. So those are just things that go into the grade. If you remember one thing, remember grade three is high grade. Grade one or two, think about that as lower risk. And then you also mentioned KI-67. And I think we've talked about that before for sure. And we talked about this in our lung cancer series. Dan, do you want to refresh our listeners about what the KI-67 is and how do we use it in breast cancer? KI-67 is a way for us to determine how quickly cells are proliferating. We are able to look for this marker of active cell division, and we can say what percentage of cells in a tumor specimen in a sample are undergoing division or basically are actively dividing. And in that way, a higher proportion of cells expressing Ki67 portends a tumor that is growing more rapidly. And we generally think of those as being more aggressive. It basically only has clinical utility in terms of prognosis in breast cancer for patients with ER-positive, HER2-negative disease, and those specifically those patients that don't need chemotherapy. And so it's, you know, it's important to note that there are some newer data out there to suggest that we may be able to use KI-67 to tell us whether or not abemaciclib, one of our newer cyclin inhibitor drugs, is going to be useful in managing advanced breast cancer. But for right now, I think of KI-67, which is, again, a growth index for cells. How rapidly is this tumor dividing? How rapidly is it growing as being mostly sort of like a prognostic tool in, in ER positive or two negative breast cancer? And the other thing that I've seen sometimes on pathology reports is is positive LVI. And we've seen this in other types of cancers as well. I, I had a hard time understanding what this meant until I looked up what LVI actually means. It just means lymphovascular invasion. And so as the name suggests, this is just the presence of the tumor invading lymph nodes or blood vessels. And in general, this suggests higher risk features, which can have implications on radiation planning. And thinking about this very fundamentally, right? If the tumor is finding its way to a lymph node or it, to a blood vessel, which are going to be vehicles for the tumor to be able to spread beyond the site of origin, then by definition, we need to be a little bit more conscious and weary that you know the patient may have some evidence of disease that could have gotten elsewhere. So we need to have a higher index of suspicion and rather adjust our management to ensure that we're being a little bit more aggressive about their care. 
So now we talked about, you know, the classification of breast cancer by IHC, so essentially the phenotype of the cell. We talked a little bit about the morphology and the variety of morphologies that are available that tumors can have and some of those characteristics. We are moving more and more in the field of oncology towards molecular understanding of tumors, and we're finding that that has significant implications on treatment options as well and how we think about our disease. So what is the latest and greatest in terms of molecular classification in breast cancer? I find molecular classification in breast cancer a fascinating topic. I'm going to walk us through a brief historical context on this because I think it's very important to understand terminology that you'll hear, and how we got to things like the Oncotype and Mammoprint scores. So what we knew in breast cancer was that women who had ER-positive disease tend to have to have a less predictive response to chemotherapy. And many researchers thought in the 90s and 2000s that, hey, are we over-treating women with chemotherapy who have ER-positive disease? Could many of them not actually need to get chemotherapy? And is there something more than just looking at IHC to classify women who would benefit more from chemotherapy. And they looked at several hundreds of genes. And in 2000, there was a paper by Perot and colleagues that we're going to link to our show notes. And I'm just going to give you the brief summary here. Basically, they defined six molecular subtypes that predicted different risks of recurrence. And the idea was maybe we could use this to identify women with ER-positive disease who would actually benefit from chemotherapy and stop over-treating. And What they defined was, and I want to mention three subtypes that you might hear referenced. You might hear luminal A, and again, this is a molecular subtype. Many of these genes were targeted genes in the ER path signaling pathway. So luminal A was found to be the least aggressive phenotype, believed to be highly dependent on hormones for growth. And we think about this as strongly ERPR positive HER2 negative tumors in general. But again, this is a molecular subclassification. Patients with luminal A often had a later relapse of disease if they were going to relapse. These aren't the women who are going to have early relapse. Chemotherapy would not be beneficial in this population was the thought. They also defined luminal B. These have less dependence on hormones. They're less sensitive to hormone blocking, but they're not as aggressive as the other subtype, which is basal-like, which was one of the more aggressive subtypes that will often correlate to triple negative breast cancer. So that just gives you an idea of any of these luminal Bs were weakly ER positive, often PR negative, occasionally HER2 positive, had a higher KI-67. Dan talked about how the KI-67 is important. And so that's the early side of all of this. We then got a lot smarter. And when we got smarter, we said, hey, can we look at a large scale and something that we can roll out as a commercially available thing to give to women to identify who would have a predictive response to chemotherapy? And from this, we have the Oncotype DX, which is a 21-gene assay, and the Mammoprint, which is a 70-gene assay that were born. And again, these are for the ER-positive women, for the historical context that we're like, we need to find out who is going to respond to chemotherapy. And we'll talk more about these assays in our systemic treatment episodes, but just wanted to mention them here. And then going hand in hand then, Vivek, we also do molecular testing, that NGS testing that we also talked about previously. And so as we know from, again, from lung cancer, specific gene mutations have targets. Dan, do you want to just give us some of the highlights and important molecular testing that we do in breast cancer? I generally think of the big one, of course, is uh, is BRCA1. 
and BRCA2. We want to look for these markers, uh, not only because they can tell us whether or not somebody may have risk for additional cancers in the future, or if there's a familial component, but there's also sort of treatment implications that we'll talk about in later episodes for those mutations. Uh, ESR1, another important mutation that we look for, it can guide us in, in choosing a hormone therapy agent. And again, we'll get into the specifics of that in later episodes, but it, it basically predicts response to a certain subtype of, of hormone therapy agents over others. And then the PIK3A or PIK3A mutation, that's also a, a good one to keep in mind because we have a, tar- a drug that targets that mutation. So much like in other cancers and other disease states that we've seen, we're starting to identify more mutations that are targetable and actionable or of prognostic significance. And as that universe of mutations and our knowledge expands, we're going to be looking for more and more. But these are some of the ones that we're looking for right now. Cool. I think that's a that's a good foundation for, you know, a lot of the important highlights that we see on our pathology report. And hopefully our listeners found that helpful. I want to spend the next couple of minutes, guys, just talking some more about buzzwords and keywords in terms of some of the surgical terminology that we're going to hear in our upcoming episode with our our guest, uh, who's a breast surgeon, a little bit about the highlights of TNM staging. And as we will see when we get to treatment, there are a lot of studies. So how we understand the vocabulary surrounding a lot of the major trials in breast cancer. So in terms of surgical terminology, any highlights that you guys want to bring to the attention of our of our listeners? Mastectomy, that one's pretty obvious. Total mastectomy is when we remove all the breast tissue in one side. That's a unilateral mastectomy. There are also certain indications for bilateral mastectomy. Some women will choose that depending on their predicted risk. And we can get into that with our, our surgeons when we're talking about that in a later episode. But the terminology that I found a little bit confusing at first was lumpectomy. And so this lumpectomy is essentially it's a partial mastectomy where for smaller tumors, we can try what's called breast conserving surgery to try and conserve as much normal breast tissue as possible and just remove an area of interest or an area of, of disease. When a surgeon is performing that surgery, they will label the excised tissue with ink and when the pathologist is looking at the tissue under a microscope, they want to, that helps define the, the margin, that helps define the edge of the tissue that was removed. And they're looking to see that there's no ink on any tumor cells, meaning that the, there was no tumor cell at the border where the, the surgeon did their cutting, where the surgeon cut out this, this lesion. If there is ink at the tumor site or tumor at the ink line, depending on how you want to, how you want to say it, we're talking about double, two times risk of local recurrence. Clear margins, of course, is going to have the lowest chance of recurrence. And we'll talk with our surgeons a little bit about how they define a clear margin and how they are making those decisions intraoperatively. But yeah, that's something that you really are looking for. You want to make sure that if somebody's doing partial mastectomy or lumpectomy, you are getting a, a margin of excision around the tumor itself of normal tissue. And I think that's key. The one thing I just remember is no ink on tissue for invasive cancers. And then I remember the number two millimeters for DCIS. And we'll talk more about that with our surgeons about why that is. There was a few meta-analysis that showed that these were the margins that we needed. So no ink on the tumor for invasive and two millimeters for DCIS. Awesome. That's that's a good that's a good framework to keep in mind for sure. The TNM staging, I literally don't understand. And so if one of you guys has an easy way to remember that. I think that would be super helpful. 
selfishly, but also I guess to share with our listeners. Yeah, this I the the thing that helped me know this the most was actually the same way that I remember the common pathway for the coagulation cascade. So if anyone's in hemoc, they should listen to that to our episodes on hemophilia where we actually talk about a lot of this. But for this case in breast cancer, remember the dollar bills. So remember we have a one dollar bill. Back in the day, we used to have that $2 bill. Don't forget about the historical $2 bill. And we've got a $5 bill. So when I think about the dollar bills, I know that T1C is greater than one centimeter. T2 is greater than two centimeters. And T3 is greater than five centimeters. So I just think about the dollar bills. I have a $1 bill, a $2 bill, and a $5 bill. T1C greater than one centimeter. T2 greater than two centimeters, and T3, greater than five centimeters. That's going to help you a lot when we talk about some of the trials and talk about some of the cutoffs for treatment. Knowing those cutoffs are critically important. For the end stage, always remember the axilla. When we talk about breast cancer, we talk about surgical staging of the axilla. Just remember the axilla. If you have movable axillary nodes, it's N1. If it's fixed axillary nodes, it's N2. The other thing I remember when I think about lymph nodes, and you'll hear this in our radiation oncology episode, internal mammary nodes are important, and those are located more centrally. Remember, central located nodes are higher risk. So N2 is could be I have internal mammary nodes without axillary nodes. I think about that for an inner quadrant breast cancer. That's closer to the center. I think those are probably maybe more likely to have internal mammary nodes, which is N2. And then N3 is anything else. So N1, movable axillary. N2, fixed axillary or internal mammary, those central nodes. N3, everything else. And remember the dollar bills, the $1 bill, the $2 bill, and the $5 bill for T1C, T2, and T3. When you put it like that, it makes a lot more sense. I I think that's a lot easier to to understand and, and visualize as opposed to that very overwhelming graph that some of our listeners may see if they if they Google all this. And the last couple of minutes, guys, I just want to talk a little bit about those trials that I mentioned just moments ago. You know, there's a lot of interesting kind of uh, endpoints that a lot of our trials are using that are a little bit different that we may not see in other disease types. And so just kind of going through all of them, like, why do we do this? And, and what are some of the highlights there? What you're referring to is, is that we're often using surrogates uh, for overall survival, right? Like the gold standard we would think of uh, when we think of trying to prove the medicine is effective or helpful in the management of cancer is do patients live longer when they take this medicine? And for a variety of reasons, it can be challenging to get that information. Ideally, you want all of your patients to be living a very long time. And so if patients have a long duration of survival, getting a, seeing a difference in overall survival can take a very long time. And sometimes we want to get drugs on the market. We want to get approvals faster than we're able to get mature or sort of viable overall survival data. And as a result, we look to surrogate endpoints, things like disease-free survival or recurrence-free survival, or basically time to progression or EFS as it's called, event-free survival. And so just going through these different things, disease-free survival is basically the patient got their treatment, they got definitive treatment with surgery, radiation, plus minus adjuvant, new adjuvant therapy. And we measure the time until the recurrence of the cancer, either local recurrence in the breast or distant disease, a second cancer or death. It's sort of one of these composite endpoints. 
The second cancer, just to keep in mind, is really important in in cancers where we are getting high cure rates because if we subject a patient to highly toxic therapy in order to affect cure and end up causing you know, a secondary leukemia or an MDS down the road, it's important to capture that in a study. It's important to capture that information, even if because the survival times are very long, we don't necessarily see that immediately in, in overall survival studies that are looking at five, 10 years of data. We'd want to kind of capture those type of events and, and disease-free survival is one of the ways we can do that. Invasive disease-free survival is a, is a similar, IDFS is a sort of similar endpoint. It's basically the same as DFS, except that we don't count or we don't consider the precursor lesion DCIS to be a significant event in that case. It's not, it's not counted against the medication's survival rate. Recurrence-free survival is, again, the same as DFS, but it doesn't count those secondary cancers. Uh, so for all the reasons that I said it was good to be capturing those with DFS, Recurrence-free survival, although, again, it can be important for looking at quality of life and, and how patients are doing in terms of their primary cancer, doesn't necessarily capture those other cancers, those secondary events. And then event-free survival, this is something that we'll often use in new adjuvant trials. We're looking at how long does it take until patients progress with their disease. Another thing we'll look at in these sort of neoadjuvant trials or trials of chemotherapy that's given before definitive resection of a tumor is how frequently those treatments lead to pathologic complete remission. Or when they give a treatment up front before and someone gets surgery, they go to surgery, they cut out the area where the tumor was, and there's no evidence of any tumor cells left. That's considered a pathologic complete response. And so that's another important endpoint because we found that patients that do achieve that tend to have much longer survivals, much lower rates of recurrence in the future. So that can be an important endpoint up front in these new adjuvant therapy studies. I think that's a fantastic overview. And I think when we start talking a lot more about the data in subsequent episodes, hopefully our listeners can come back to this and refer to our show notes to kind of use this as a guide to navigating some of these, these key trials. And with that being said, though, I think this provides a great framework for us to continue these awesome conversations that we're having in our breast cancer series. Um, and so any final thoughts that you guys have, anything you else you want to add? Now, the only thing I would say is check out the show notes. We'll outline everything we talked about today. And, and this is going to be an important conceptual episode to internalize as we get into the more complicated nuances in the field of breast cancer. All right, y'all. Well, until next time, we'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.